Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, but today we have a slightly different format for the show than normal. Last week, Toby recorded an interview with Victor Bricard, who is a professor of media policy and political economy at the Annenberg School for Communication. Their chat was all about the Fairness Doctrine and the FCC. So without any further delay, here are Toby and Victor. Enjoy. Victor, could you please introduce the Fairness Doctrine uh, and where it came from, and also the even the FCC as a as an institution and and what kind of context um, it came out of originally. Sure, I'd be happy to. I'll probably probably actually start out with the FCC um, since that's uh, kind of an important uh, detail in this story to understand the fairness doctrine. The FCC, which stands for the Federal Communications Commission, is the leading regulatory agency in the U.S that has um, regulatory uh, overview of much of our media system, including uh, broadcast media, telecommunications, and uh, anything that concerns the regulation of the public airwaves, which of course would include uh, radio and television, um, traces back to the FCC's authority. And the FCC was founded by the 1934 uh, Communications Act. Um, and before that, uh, there was a, an earlier uh, Federal Radio Commission, um, which very much served as kind of a blueprint for what became the Federal Communications Commission. But this, uh, this Communications Act 1934 gave the FCC the authority to uh, pass uh, regulation, pass policies, that, um, that govern, uh, again, what we think of as the public airwaves. Uh, and that's gonna be uh, the idea that they are public, publicly owned, um, I think is very important here when we understand that there is this kind of social contract when we give these monopoly rights to uh, broadcasters. And in the United States, it's almost always commercial broadcasters. So broadcasters who are going to use the public airwaves for their own private, uh, pursuit of profit, that there is um, some uh, social responsibility entailed. This was sometimes referred to as the public trustee model of of uh, broadband. Uh, sorry, of, of broadcast uh, governance, and this is where the F, the the fairness doctrine comes into play because there's often been uh, what's known as the public interest principle. That is that those uh, broadcasters who have these monopoly rights to the public airwaves must uphold the public interest, must give something back to the public. And the fairness doctrine was meant to serve as this kind of public interest protection. And there's a much uh, longer story to how we ended up with the fairness doctrine, um, which I'm sure we'll get into momentarily, but the Fairness Doctrine was passed in 1949. It only later became known as the Fairness Doctrine, but it basically uh, mandated that broadcasters cover controversial issues of local public importance and to do so in a balanced manner. So to make sure that there are uh, opposing views um, given representation 
in broadcast coverage of these issues. And um, over the years, uh, this was often a very uh, controversial and contentious uh, policy, um, but it remained uh, in operation until 1987, when during the Reagan administration, um, it, it was uh, largely jettisoned, although technically it remained on the books, at least in some vestigious form um, until 2011. So that was a very long-winded uh, and yet uh, still a kind of short version of what's a much longer history and story of how we, uh, how we arrived at the Fairness Doctrine. But the, the Fairness Doctrine does seem to have an, an even sort of a longer history because there was the, the Mayflower Doctrine, which um, mandated that, that um, there would be provision of full and equal opportunity for uh, both sides on um, public radio, especially in the, 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 in the sort of burgeoning period of, of public radio. So would you think, do you think that this, this contract, the social contract that you speak of had always been structurally part of radio broadcasting or? Right, yeah, no, those are excellent, excellent questions. And you're absolutely right that the Fairness Doctrine essentially replaced what had been known as the Mayflower Rule, the Mayflower Doctrine. And that was an even uh, stricter um, policy protection, which basically forbade broadcasters from politically editorializing. Um, and this emerged, uh, I believe it was passed in 1940, went into effect in 1941, but it came out of a broader context, which again, I mentioned the 1934 Communications Act that had this somewhat ill-defined notion of public interest, that broadcasters must serve in the public interest, but that was never fully defined. And that led to all kinds of policy battles throughout the 1930s and 40s, which is what much of my research focuses on, um, but really remains uh, contentious to this day. And lar that's largely because every time the FCC tried to really uh, further define the public interest principle to really give it some regulatory teeth, the commercial broadcast industry industries would always uh, counterattack, would always do everything in their power to make sure that that remained ill-defined um, so that today you have this sort of historical mythology that it's, you know, we've never really known exactly what the public interest means. Um, it's always remained ambiguous, but that leaves out a very important detail, which is that the broadcast industries themselves have fought tooth and nail to make sure that it remains ambiguous, which serves uh, their interests, their commercial interests very well. But the Mayflower Doctrine emerged um, especially after the 1930s, when there were a number of cases where broadcasters were clearly abusing uh, their licenses, uh, abusing their, their power. Um, and there were some um, extreme cases. There was Father Coughlin, uh, who was basically, uh, in many ways, a kind of uh, at least a proto fascist. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so there were these very controversial uh, cases where you know, the FCC was kind of forced in the position um, as much as they didn't want to have strict programming uh, restrictions, they uh, were did pass some of these laws such as the May or these policies such as the Mayflower Doctrine, where they really tried to nip this in the bud and basically say, 
Broadcasters are not allowed to advocate for their own pet political issues. Uh, but there were ways that broadcasters were able to get around this. Uh, nonetheless, when um, it was first being proposed to get rid of the Mayflower Doctrine and towards the late 1940s and the political landscape had really started to shift at this point in the United States, uh, broadcasters were very eager to get rid of that rule, but publicly it was pretty popular. Uh, if you look at the public hearings that took place in the late 40s, the overwhelming um, number of, of, of uh, you know, advocates and, and based on the letters that were written to the FCC, the public did not want um, weaker regulations. If anything, they wanted stronger regulations on the commercial broadcasters. So this is another important detail that often gets left out. And indeed, when people talk about the Fairness Doctor today, which in many ways is probably the most well-known <laughs> um, and, and yet most, in many ways, notorious uh, media policy ever put into, uh, into effect, um, it, there's, it's really uh, misunderstood, especially the origin of the Fairness Doctrine and how it was born out of these earlier um, uh, controversies. And that really, um, the public, uh, when the Fairness Doctrine finally did go into effect in the late 40s, it was in many ways a consolation prize to reformers who actually wanted stronger, more structural reforms placed on commercial broadcasters. You, you do mark that out in your book that um, even though there was this, um, this, this, this fairness doctrine, that it was a sort of moderate stance in, instead of the broader uh, liberal policy that um, reformers were, were looking for at the time. But what, what is interesting is, is also you, you do talk about how broadcasters reacted to, um, to the, to the fair, Fairness Doctrine. Uh, William Paley, who was one of the leaders at CBS, was very, very scared of the, of the Fairness Doctrine. You know, people at CBS were very frantic. Um, you know, they, they, they thought that the FCC was going to pro prohibit CBS from functioning at, really is a network and so they, they were they were very scared of this of this law and Paley went in front of the this Senate committee and tried to sort of emphasize why that the fairness doctrine um, would weaken the power of, of, of broadcasters but in my in your book you confuse the story by actually saying that no that the, the reformers wanted to go much further than the the fairness doctrines provisions um, ended up, you know, which is which I found re really really interesting. So so how how far were they willing to go? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and and again, you know, that's why the origins of the fairness doctrine are so little understood, and there's so many historical ironies um, at work once you start taking a look at how it came about. And that it actually, even though today among progressive reformers, it's often held up as a kind of high watermark for you know, enlightened media policymaking. But at the time, it was not seen that way at all. And also what's interesting is that even though it later became um, treated as you know, this, this, this great, this overreach, this regulatory overreach by the, by the uh, industry, they you know, made it sound as if it was this great violation of cherished, cherished uh, American freedoms and, and First Amendment uh, protections, 
at the time when uh, this this outcome uh, came out in, in the late 40s, the broadcast industry treated it as a great victory. Um, you know, that, I mean, they weren't happy that they would have to adhere to this kind of, you know, this regulatory uh, benchmark um, with, again, what later became known as the Fairness Doctrine. But at the time they were crowing with, you know, that they were victorious in throwing out the Mayflower Doctrine. So much of this today is, uh, is left out of the historical narrative. But I think to get back to your question, I think it's even, uh, you know, important to look further back to the early 30s when, you know, it was first being determined in the United States what kind of broadcast media system we would have. And what's little known today was that there was actually a pretty uh, concerted push to create more of a nonprofit, non-commercial sector um, on, on the airwaves to really carve out a significant section uh, of, of, of radio spectrum devoted to educational programming, for example. And, if, and we came fairly close to having that. It would be a, an exaggeration to say we, you know, we almost had something like the BBC, um, but we certainly almost had something that was much less commercial than what we ended up with. And if you start looking at the details of that history, you see that you know, this was a lot more contingent than people would readily uh, acknowledged today. Um, and it wasn't inevitable that we ended up with such a hyper-commercialized media system in the United States that's really quite exceptional. You know, it's compared, comparing it to media systems around the world, uh, I don't think anything comes as close to the U.S., particularly around broadcasting. But of course, this, this structural uh, paradigm mapped on to subsequent media systems as well. Um, so that in general, we have such a commercialized system in the US with very few public alternatives. But if we look at this trajectory in the early 30s when educators and, and, and media reformers were really advocating for a more nonprofit, uh, non-commercial broadcast media sector, um, and then they lost that battle. So now they're, they end up with this very commercialized system. So then the question is, all right, what kind of public interest protections will we have? And they went from having things like the Mayflower Doctrine, which forbade broadcasters from politically editorializing altogether. They also attempted things like breaking up media monopolies or creating a very strong um, uh, public mandates where, for example, if broadcasters didn't cover uh, public affairs uh, for, for a certain percentage of their programming, or if there was too much advertising, they would lose their license to the public airwaves. This is something that's you know, almost beyond comprehension today. Wow. This was very much being attempted in the 1940s. So in the early 40s and mid 40s. So by the time you get to the Fairness Doctrine in the late 40s, this, is, this only happened after all these earlier battles had been lost. And this again is crucial context that's very rarely um, uh, mentioned in today's, uh, you know, whenever we're narrating this history today. Yeah, yeah, especially why I found your book so, so radical, because you, you, you consider the period, you know, the period where, you know, Vox journalists rhapsodize about as if it was this, um, you know, great period, this Camelot of the Walter Cronkite period. You say that the, actually the, the beginnings of that was really the triumph of a libertarian approach to broadcast regulation, which is That's very right. different from, from 
what the popular story story is. That's right. I mean, again, a number of ironies come into focus when you look at this history of the 1940s and you see what could have been. You know, you see mm -hmm. the rise and fall of this more social democratic vision of what media should look like in a democratic society, what we could have had in the U.S. Uh, and it really trained, I mean, the, I'd say the, the main, main contributing factor which led to the corporate libertarian triumph that, that I documented in my, in my first book is this, this you know, anti-communist hysteria that really took hold in the U.S. in the mid-40s. And really, whether you're looking at the, our media system or whether you're trying to make sense of how we never had a nationalized uh, healthcare system, or you're looking at our, ta you know, our, our, our core financial systems, everything traces back to this moment in the 40s when our policy trajectories suddenly moved quite radically to the right, uh, where we had been on a similar social democratic path that many democracies, especially in Europe, um, were on at the time. Um, it suddenly we were moved far to the right. And this period of anti-communist hysteria and red baiting really left this lasting imprint on all of our core systems and, and our core infrastructures. Um, and again, this, this, this history has largely been erased in the process of kind of naturalizing you know, what's now thought of as just the American way. You know, this is just the way we do things in the US. And what my history tries to show, especially around our media system, is that it wasn't inevitable, you know, it wasn't natural that we ended up with something so different from other systems and leading democracies around the planet, um, that really it does trace back to this cluster of policy battles in the 40s, and that we're really um, settled in a particular way, again, largely because of this red baiting, where even the most, uh, you know, innocuous uh, reform agenda was uh, delegitimated as being some kind of you know, socialistic plot. And that these mildly, they weren't even socialists. I would really, I, I refer to them as social Democrats mm -hmm. or even just liberal, liberal Democrats uh, were chased out of DC. You know, they were people like Clifford Durr and Charles Eatman and Dallas Smythe, people I talk about in my book. Um, they were basically driven out of DC, driven out of these bureaucratic, uh, halls of power. And, uh, and that's really how we ended up with the system that we have in the US. Yeah, that's, that's, that's incredibly fascinating. I, th I think you're, you're, you are, I think, very right, you know, that sort of um, mid to late 40s period was a time of great experimentation, you know, I mean, Henry Wallace could have been the president of the of United States instead of Harry Truman, you know, there's so much was so much was happening and so, so many things about the United States was set, so many conversations were settled in that period that people don't really tend to think about it that way. But but let's let's um, get on to the the 1960s, because by the 1960s, what you're seeing is sort of the burgeonings of conservative talk radio, many conservative um, so radio hosts are being sponsored by philanthropists and they're flouting the fairness doctrine. And this seems to come to a head in um, 1969 when the Supreme Court issued a unanimous decision 
um, in Red Line Broadcasting Co. versus uh, the FCC, in which they upheld the constitutionality of the fairness doctrine. So could you tell me about the, the right-wing attack on, on the fairness doctrine in, in this period? Sure. So once again, uh, the, the ironies are, 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 are pretty stark because not long um, after the, the late 40s, um, when um, there you know, is basically hailed as a, as, a, as a triumph of commercial industries, they immediately uh, went to work in trying to get rid of the fairness doctrine. And I think you already hinted earlier about how it was immediately being casted as you know, this dire threat um, to American radio. Um, and of course, there was this trope that came out of the 40s, uh, sometimes referred to as radio freedom, you know, or free radio. And that basically this was defined as a very libertarian uh, paradigm that, you know, if we had free radio as long as government had no control over, over, our, uh, over our, our public airwaves. And of course, the idea that government isn't involved uh, is a libertarian fantasy. Uh, government is always deeply involved in our media system. It's just a question of how it should be involved and whether it should be involved to uh, increase the interests of the commercial operators or to protect, again, this, this always uh, vaguely defined public interest. And this really came to a head in uh, the 1960s when reformers, just as much as, as the industries were pretty quick to begin demonizing the fairness doctrine, reformers were finding ways to, uh, to deploy it you know, towards progressive ends. And there had been a number of progressive victories um, throughout the, the 60s where um, reformers were able to uh, drive off you know, racists uh, and far right uh, broadcasters off the air with, with fairness. This really didn't happen uh, nearly as often as, as conservatives would make it out to be. You know, they're often accusing the fairness doctrine as playing this kind of chilling role. Um, there's not a ton of evidence for that. Although I think it's probably safe to say that some broadcasters would try to play it safe by not taking, uh, you know, by not taking on controversial subjects or taking on uh, strong political views uh, in any in any direction. I, I think that that to some extent that may have happened, but with the Red Lion case, um, which was quite remarkable because it went all the way up to the to the Supreme Court, um, and the Supreme Court unanimously decided determined that the fairness doctrine was constitutional. And in their decision, they basically articulated, which was, which really remains a high watermark for um, positive freedoms being um, you know, really captured in policy and legal discourse, which is this idea that it's not just a question of keeping government um, out of our media system, but it's also a question of you know, what, do, what does the public get? What, you know, what, what sort of questions of access um, should be uh, should, should really be uh, um, protected in our in our policies? And the Red Lion decision determined that it was the rights of audiences, of, of listeners and viewers, not the rights of broadcasters, which is paramount. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that's almost verbatim. Um, and this this did not happen, does not happen very often in the U.S where you have this more kind of expansive um, public protection, uh, sometimes thought of as collective First Amendment rights, where it's the rights of society 
that are privileged over the individual rights of broadcasters and media owners. And again, it was a unanimous decision. And uh, and really, you know, I don't I don't think we can point to many other instances where this kind of positive freedom is so uh, so clearly articulated in uh, in in legal and policy discourse. So in the in the nineteen seventies, you get sort of um, an increase in cable television. A number of conservative scholars feel that the scarcity aspects that um, structured the fairness doctrine are no longer the case and that and then now there there, is, there can be more more voices and a lot, number of these people um, end up in the Reagan White House and so could you tell me how eventually the Reaganites um, are able to first obviously attack the fairness doctrine and then able to ro- roll it back in, in the Supreme Court. Sure, and what's, what's interesting here too, and I should have known this earlier, that it wasn't just uh, progressive activists who found great value in the Fairness Doctrine, but it was also conservative um, activists. And I'm here, I'm thinking of, of you know, great uh, well-known uh, uh, conservative activists such, such as Phyllis Schlafly, um, and others who really tried to use the Fairness Doctrine to also make sure that right-wing voices uh, were included on the public airwave. So oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is very, very important context because, again, as it gets narrated today, it makes it seem as if, oh, you know, there was this, this uh, sea change in public opinion um, towards, uh, towards the Fairness Doctrine. But really, this was a fairly narrow uh opinion within a particular slice of the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, certainly not all Republicans felt this way. And indeed, as soon as um, it was uh, thrown out by the Reagan uh, FCC, you had uh, efforts in uh, in Congress where even people like Newt Gingrich uh, championed, uh, you know, tried to legislate the Fairness Doctrine. You know, so you had many, many conservatives who not only saw the fairness doctrine as you know just the status quo, but really wanted to keep it in a, in in the on the books, and uh, and so you know it was really more the kind of economic conservatives who wanted to and the libertarian conservatives in particular, who really wanted to strip out any kind of uh, you know regulatory uh, protection that might you know impede the the profit making of uh, of commercial broadcasters. Um, so this is, you know, now that it's become so naturalized and now it's almost, you know, it, it is pretty much the all Republicans would say they're against the fairness doctrine. It's become so much more polarized as so many things happen in the U.S. But it's very interesting to show that this was not a bottom up endeavor at all. This was very much top down. Again, yeah, it's the breaking of that popular narrative, you know, obviously, under the fairness doctrine, Walter Cronkite um, broadcasted a certain way, but many conservatives believe Walter Cronkite had a, a liberal bias, and they thought that the fairness doctrine was protecting conservative opinions, that like New Greenwich, like Trent Law, uh, like Felicia Lafley, just as, as as you've said. Again, it's just it's not it's not a narrative that's so simple, despite what is popularly um, articulated. Uh, uh, about it yeah it's, it's 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 a very interesting story 
Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, one other thing I would add um, that I think brings some of this into focus. I mean, if we recall that the SEC chairman at this time under Reagan, Mark Feller, um, you know, had a number of positions that I think speak volumes. I mean, for one, he said that televisions are nothing more than toasters with pictures, right? This <laughs> idea that, you know, this, this idea that like basically our media, our media, our products, our media content is nothing more than, than widgets, you know, that we really shouldn't protect it in any special way that doesn't have any special role in democratic societies. And he also wanted to define the public interest as you know, that which interests the public which is a kind of you know, commercial consumer uh, relationship and value um, that again, does, does not uh, allow for any special democratic protection um, to come into uh, consideration when we're passing media policy. And this is a real, this is a real shift. It's an ideological shift, it's an ideological project that Reagan really advanced. And then as you know, I think the second stage of that is to naturalize, right? To naturalize all this. And part of that again is in the narration, you know, how we make sense of this history. And what so much of my work tries to do is to recover these earlier conflicts, these earlier contingencies, to try to unsettle it, you know, to try to denaturalize this and to show it really, you know, could have could have happened differently and could still, at least in theory, happen differently. Um, and of course, that's probably my ultimate aim is, is to try to denaturalize uh, our understandings of our media systems so that we can then um, change it and, and try to uh, you know, return to some of these democratic principles and not think of our media as, as simply widgets um, and to think that there is, are more important relationships beyond just you know commercial and consumer based uh, uh, outcomes. So I think that's what we we need to recover, and we can if we do recover these earlier debates. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you just go to the nineteen eighties, you you know you have the rise of people like Rupert Mur Murdoch, who are saying that you know people at the BBC or at CBS. They're the gatekeepers. They're they're elites who feel that you know media should have some sort of purpose to educate the masses. But instead of educating the masses, what we really need to do is that the masses know what they want, and we should just give them what they want. So it's not just a oh okay a, a movement towards a conservative perspective. Actually, some conservatives held that the 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 media should uh, be some an educational source for people. It, it, should, it, it should be regulated in some ways, but it's really, it's the rise of capital in, in, in many ways in a different and a whole different model of, of, the, of the media. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a really, it's a really interesting topics. And I know you, you've touched on it already, but what do you think is the legacy of the, of the fairness doctrine and, and, and where do you think um, policy debates need to go in the future if we are to see um, a sort of retrieval of the kind of potential and experimentation of the, of the, of the 1940s? Yeah, so I, of course, have a lot of strong <laughs> views on, on this <laughs> question and, and much of my work. I mean, we're talking mostly about, you know, what I covered in my first book. But since then, I've written a couple other books uh, on, you know, where I think we should go from here. 
and why the fairness doctrine continues to play a role even in contemporary debates, even though it's been long dead. Uh, it just keeps coming back, at least in the, the you know, the imagination of both uh, conser conservative and progressive uh, activists alike. But basically now it serves as a sort of shorthand for conservatives um, that anything, I mean, even things such as net neutrality um, was, you know, was, was dismissed by conservatives as the fairness doctrine for the internet. Um, and I, I never fully understood exactly how, uh, how, how that makes sense. But, um, you know, anytime even the most uh, mildly affirmative uh, media policy is being considered, uh, conservatives will try to preemptively attack it by calling it a new fairness doctrine. Now, at the same time, you do have progressive activists who will continue to bring up the fairness doctrine. Um, and you know, you saw this most recently in two uh, related contexts. One is around um, you know, right-wing cable television, especially shows like Tucker Carlson um, that have been, uh, again, you know, I used the term earlier, proto-fascist. I think that actually would be an apt term. Uh, to describe some of some of these, uh, you know, some of the far right wing uh, cable uh, shows, and many activists thought, you know, if only we could bring back a fairness doctrine that would apply not just to broadcast media but to cable television as well. The other context where it keeps coming back is around social media, and people think, you know, well, if only we had a fairness doctrine for Facebook, we could get rid of some of this dis and misinformation. Now that is even a, a more of a stretch than applying it to cable television. I, I don't think it's really feasible to ever apply the fairness doctrine to, uh, to social media. Um, but where I do think that uh, we should be looking to at least some of the ideas that were expressed in these earlier debates around the fairness doctrine is this idea of the public interest. And also this idea that we need structural safeguards that to make sure, as you noted earlier, what we're seeing today is really the, this, this complete capture uh, by capitalist interests of our entire news and information uh, systems. And we need to find ways where, where we can carve out um, public alternatives, you know, structural safeguards, structural alternatives to this hyper-commercialized uh, media system that is constantly being you know, naturalized and re-articulated in the United States um, and I think this is where, you know, this is where I try to use history to expand our imagination about what's possible for the future. And I really advocate for, you know, creating something more along the lines. I often use the, the BBC simply as an example because Americans have warm, fuzzy feelings about the BBC. It's not, I don't suggest that, that would be the ideal scenario, but I do think that we need a much better funded public alternative and this again goes back to the, that idea that uh, that you know the, the 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 fairness doctrine really was kind of a regulatory band aid to put on these commercial excesses of of a, of a corporate driven media system, and instead of constantly trying to you know mop up the messes from from these commercial excesses why don't we instead try to create something entirely different, you know, an actual public alternative to the oligopoly dominated commercial system um, that, that's so prevalent in the United States. So in a nutshell, that's what I'm trying to argue for 
And I do think that that's where we can look to these earlier historical debates to try to uh, gain inspiration, but also to see what went wrong, <laughs> what went wrong in our history that we came to inherit the system that we have today in the US. Yeah, ab absolutely. I think um, from your work, um, what I can gauge from it is that, especially on this issue, there's so much intellectual space that was opened up in a particular time at that because of, you know, of history of, of, of structural opportunities that's possibly, you know, in the 1940s, people knew a little bit more about this than, than they do now, you know, and, and it's, it's not the same with every, every uh, topic in political um, economy in some some areas we've we've moved forward but yeah i mean it's it's absolutely um it's absolutely interesting and, and i think in this area it's absolutely crucial that we go back um in in order to recapture a, a, a sense of the possibilities and um and and even even an idea of a some sort of public broadcaster in the united states the united states um, something in the within the public interests. I mean, it's absolutely needed. You, you just have to point to Fox News, and even to the the vilification of more liberal, more moderate, and even you know, I think even the internal policies of ABC, CBS, them and uh, MSNBC are quite like the Fairness Doctrine. They are trying a little bit to offer both sides. Not it's not coming down from the FCC, but they're they're internally they're doing this, and and it it really doesn't seem to be enough. So I do think that um, in, in the future, if it if it is possible, I mean that's that's probably would be a, a way to solve a lot of the problems that we have today. And then those problems um, aren't just problems of you know difference of opinion or polarization, but they're problems of whole vacuums and ecosystems of media that lead to things like what happened uh, at the Capitol in January, you know? And, and, and it's, it's, it's really, really important that um, we solve the structural problems with, um, of, of American media. And I think you're doing, you're doing great work by, by taking us to, um, back to a point where these discussions were, were more open. Yes, thank you, Toby. I'm I'm trying my trying my best, and uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's it's always uh, it, it's always a bit of a challenge again to go because you're always trying to cut against one is always trying to cut against um, these very naturalized uh, you know conceptions of how we ended up with this system. I mean, it's very hard for us to realize that there really could have been a, an alternative, that there still is an alternative, and uh, you know we've. You, you, I think you hinted at this earlier, but even when we think of the golden era of broadcast news, or we think of someone like Edward R. Murrow, I mean, Edward R. Murrow uh, couldn't get, you know, commercial sponsorship for a lot of the shows that he was doing. I mean, he really struggled to do the work that he did um, within that commercial media landscape. And it just brings into focus this kind of market censorship that's always there, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, that predictably, um, really constrains political discourse and, and ensures that particular voices are, are not heard and particular viewpoints are not expressed. 
And so I think this structural critique can help, uh, can help bring that into focus. And even when we do get relatively good social uh, behavior, you know, social responsibility from our uh, corporate media firms, it's often because there is, uh, you know, a, a credible regulatory threat that keeps them in some, you know, semblance of good behavior. And I think that is something that the fairness doctrine is often not given credit for when it was in operation, that it was some kind of guardrail. You know, it gave, it gave activists, uh, it, it gave um, just the public writ large, some kind of tool, some measure to help, uh, you know, to, to really try to um, uh, keep broadcasters responsible uh, and accountable to local communities. And, you know, we lost that. We lost much of that during the Reagan administration and even after that, even under the, the Clinton administration, uh, many of these public interest protections were further uh, weakened. So, you know, there's, there's always one strategy, which is to try to reclaim some of those public interest protections or even to, you know, make sure that we maintain some notion of, of a public interest principle, which at least by implication suggests market failure, which I think in and of itself is very important. But again, we do need these public structural alternatives. Uh, and I think that's something we need to continue to fight for, especially as we lose what little journalism is left in the United States. That I do think this kind of public option uh, needs to be, you know, central to to any sort of progressive reform agenda going forward. Absolutely. So I have to say, um, Victor, thank you very much for for being a guest on Impressions of of America. I think you've um, you've outlined a, a fabulous um, strategy for at least looking at at the, at the prospects of a different future in media and and for American political economy writ, writ large so yeah I, I, um, I really appreciate it and, and it's been a, I think it's been a great pleasure my pleasure Toby thanks so much for having me on your on your podcast for me and Victor uh, goodbye goodbye